This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Alice McDermott is a three-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She's the winner of the National Book Award. Someone, if you haven't read Someone, I'm going to say, please go get that now. It is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite Alice McDermott books. Absolution is the new novel. And I'm going to ask Alice to do something we don't always do on the show, which is have her read the few opening sentences from this book, because I think it's just going to set up this conversation in a really good way. So Alice, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining us. But would you please read the opening sentences of Absolution for us? I will do that. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. There were so many cocktail parties in those days. And when they were held in the afternoon, we called them garden parties. But they were cocktail parties nonetheless. You have no idea what it was like for us, the women, I mean, the wives. And here's the thing. We're not in Maryland yet. We're not in Brooklyn. We're not on Long Island. We are not in the Bronx. We are not in the States. We're in Vietnam in the 60s -hmm. as the war is starting to escalate. And you're writing about American wives. And I have to ask, how, where did this idea come from? How did we get to Vietnam? Testing way back, the seeds for this novel um, were in my first, very first reading of Graham Greene's The Quiet American. That puts me as an undergrad. Even at that time, um, you know, when Vietnam, you know, was the war of my generation, um, it struck me that, um, you know, Green was so prescient, um, the book coming out in the mid-50s and what he saw for America's path in its interference in this country is really remarkable. And at the same time, the women he depicts are just straight out of the 50s. They right. have, they have it is. interior lives. <laughs> uh, so he saw what was coming politically, but he sure right. as hell didn't see what was coming for women right. Right. Um, in the next decade. So years go by, and you know, I went back to the book. I've gone back to the book because it is. It's written, and um, it's deep and complex, and I, I say amazingly prescient. But that always sort of snagged me. And, and there were two American characters, very, very minor characters. They only appear briefly. Two mm-hmm. young women who were finishing their ice cream at a milk bar in Saigon uh, just before a bomb goes off and all the action um, comes mm-hmm. together. And uh, Fowler, who's the narrator, you know, this hardened British journalist, looks at these two and sort of envies how clean they are and how uncomplicated their lives are compared to mine, I'm, you know, the minds um, And over the years, especially since I've lived here inside the Beltway, um, I have encountered in real life at cocktail parties, at my kids' school, in the, you know, in the carpool line, just as you do, chatting in the girl. I've encountered so many women who I thought they could have been those two American girls, um, and their lives are not uncomplicated. <laughs> And they were never passionless. So absolution sort of became my chance to let these women have their say um, and to hear their voices, which I think have been ignored, um, certainly coming mm-hmm. out of that era. Oh, without a doubt. I have to say, when I first heard that the book was coming and where it was set and what you were doing, and of course, it's you, 
my first thought actually was Graham Greene. And I was curious to see how Absolution was going to be in conversation. So I went back, actually. I had to go buy a new copy because I couldn't find my copy. So this is when I'm referencing The Quiet American. And it has an introduction by Robert Stone, who's a writer I love, but also haven't really read recently. But reading Stone's analysis, and if you haven't read A Flag for Sunrise, if you haven't read Outer Bridge Reach, certainly Dog Soldiers, you know, he's Robert Stone. You should go read these things. It was wild to see his introduction, which I, I honestly, I don't even know when exactly it was written, and having Trisha and Charlene and Rainey in the back of my brain as I'm, because also, I mean, you know, Robert wrote very sort of macho fiction. I mean, he was writing of a certain time, you know, most of his stuff came out in the 60s and 70s and and there were later works. I mean, certainly Damascus Gate and whatnot. But when I think of Robert Stone and, and the body of work that makes him Robert Stone for me as a reader, it's all the stuff from the 60s and 70s and it all comes back to Vietnam. And you and Green sort of have a similar sensibility. I feel like you're sort of writing with a raised eyebrow. Even when you're talking about these women and letting them do their thing, there's some moments, and obviously we're going to be spoiler-free in this conversation, but there are some moments where I feel like you're saying, okay, I see who you are, Mm -hmm. but do you? I mean, do Trisha Mm -hmm. and Charlene? I mean, we meet Rainey as a child, so obviously we'll, we'll cut her some slack early on, but you know, do these women really see their paths? I mean, the way you have Trisha and Charlene sort of collide literally with baby vomit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> a great touch. It happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, years ago when I was doing events for BNN, someone did actually hand me their baby at an event um, as she was going through the signing line. And, and yes, the baby was covered in vomit. And I just sort of stood there saying, okay, <laughs> okay. I'm not entirely sure what to do, but please come take your child back from me as soon as you can. But did you start with these two particular women or was it really just being in conversation with Green and sort of this bigger idea of America and the world? Yeah, no, it, it, I knew it was it had to be the woman's story and it had to be precisely their story. Um, you know. The last thing any of us needs is any novelist or probably at this point, any journalist pontificating about our failures um, in Southeast Asia. Uh, we've heard it. Um, we know. Um, so there was the important thing of this. This is that's the raised eyebrow. This is a woman looking back. Um, it's not a, as it happens, historical novel it's more of a faux memoir. I also knew right away that this 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 woman, a, a creature of her times, as a young woman, then also of the subsequent years, um, she got to live through what Green didn't see coming, um, and that is finding their own voices. So I think that's where the the narrative raised eyebrow comes. She would not she would not sound like the same character if she had been writing at twenty four or twenty five. She's looking back. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I would say there were echoes, though, of, you know, Marie from someone or Sally from The Ninth Hour or even Lucy, like Lucy Daly, if I go really back to At Weddings and Wakes. It's very Virginia Woolf of you. You understand where I'm going with this. But, you know, this idea that all of these tiny moments add up to a life. And and there were some people who would look at their stories and say, well, you you've led a very quiet life. You know, you're, you only do these things. You have a very circumscribed experience. 
And, you know, in a way, we could say the same thing about Trisha and Charlene, because they're living within the American, you know, sort of in this American expat community. I mean, there are some women who, even though they're living in Vietnam, have instructed the household staff to make sure that they only eat Western food, because they will not eat Vietnamese food, etc. And this idea that you can make your world as small as you would like, even if you're thousands and thousands of miles away. Yeah, um, you know, life is made up of those small moments, um, even for the movers and shakers. And certainly these characters are not movers and shakers. But I've I've always been, I mean, one of my favorite plays, and this goes back to, you know, something I saw as an undergraduate and go back to and have taught, um, is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Um, That whole sense of, okay, yeah, we know what's going on on stage, but what's going on when the characters exit? Um, that's always fascinated me that, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, yeah, you're doing all these important things, but we're living the life and we're having the children and we're ensuring the next generation, that sense of these small dramas are not small as you're right. living them. Um, right. it's, it's, I think really essential. And it, and I think it very much is that sense of these women on the periphery of these and it really isn't them. I mean, this is 1963 that, that Trisha is recording. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's my dog. <laughs> so it's really on the periphery of mm-hmm. great change in right. Vietnam. They're at the time, if you go back and look at contemporary news reports, news reporters had to put a map of the world. Oh, this yeah. is where a place you've never heard of. It's that sense of now I know the great events, but my life was also just as important to me as I was living through it. That's Trisha's memoir. But the other thing I also understood somehow, I suppose maybe intuitively about Trisha is that she must be invited to tell her story. Somebody has had to ask her for her story. She is not a memoirist. She's not someone who who would be telling her story unbidden. That was one of the very first things I understood about the story, that she must be invited to tell it. Um, and when you've been invited to tell a story, there's mm-hmm. a certain self-consciousness that, that I think uh, plays in her voice. I think, too, with Trisha, one of the reasons I like her as a character is, it's exactly as you say, like, she needs to be invited to do things. She's, she's breaking so many barriers for her. I mean, here she is. She's a kid who grew up raised by her dad. Her mother has died. She's an only child. She's grown up in a very specific way with very specific sort of, let's call them guardrails, right? Not necessarily rules. But, you know, the one time she tries to head to a different direction with a classmate in college, actually the classmate's aunt looks at her and says, oh, mm." and the idea that Trisha is it's not necessarily that she's naive. I don't want to dismiss her as being naive, but she is just trying to figure out what it all means. She's been told she needs, she wants to aspire to be a wife and a mother and all of these things. And she doesn't quite know how she actually feels about these things. She just knows she's supposed to hit these certain beats. Mm-hmm. And watching her figure this out and sort of seeing how she interacts, certainly with Charlene, but also her husband. And just the other 
whether they're Vietnamese or Americans and, and there's a French doctor who sort of rolls in later, but watching her figure out how she feels about people and where she mm. wants to be. It's, it's a really interesting way to handle a coming of age story because also you've got this narrator looking backwards. It's a good puzzle. Like if you like puzzles and literary fiction may not be the first thing you've turned to, this would be a great place to start. I think. <laughs> but can we talk about the structure for a second? It's told in three sections. You do bounce between the present day and Vietnam in 1963. And the transitions are really nicely done, obviously, because it's you. But when you're sitting down to tell a story like this, because also you do tend to write very short books, <laughs> but we're covering a lot of ground. I mean, we're covering decades and we're crossing oceans and a lot is happening. And how are you mapping that out because I do know you write at the sentence level. I know it's all about the sentences. But you also have a really great sense of story and narrative propulsion. So I'm wondering how it all balances out for you. Yeah, I think um, uh, I've spent, I mean, I've, I've hit writing students over the head with this any number of times. Um, and then I find myself with this novel actually trying to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And that is the notion of putting yourself as, as the writer. Um, totally at the service of character, totally at the service of voice, character, and, you know, if we can get a little highfalutin truth and okay. authenticity. I find myself more and more sort of recoiling from uh, too much planning, even too much hope this novel achieves this. More that listening mm -hmm. to a character, um, getting out of the way so that the character can tell her tale without an author's intervention and without an author's judgment, um, which is even harder because, you know, we all have our own egos. You know, you want readers to think you know things, mm. <laughs> you know, you want readers to think you're in control. So, so this was very much, um, who is this? Who is right, she? Okay. Um, and, and let her tell me in moving around the space that she finds herself in and encountering it, who she is and what she wants. And, and I think the thing that tugs her, and it's both a part of that background and that culture that she was raised in that, that you talked about, um, and, and it's also out of it, outside of it for women in that era, and that is this tremendous sense that I want a bigger life. I want to do good in the world. And even her... Uh, her excursion um, to Birmingham as as a college student, um, it's not so much you're not up for this that her that the aunt of her friend tells her and sends her home. Mm -hmm. It's you have to make a choice, right? You put your life at risk for the greater good, mm -hmm. or you take care of the people who depend on you, even if it's only one person. Right. In her case your father, who needs you. And those in many ways were the choices that that so many women were given. It's really binary. If you look back on American history and up until very recently too, like if you think about it, like women couldn't have credit cards in their own names and bank accounts, all of it, like it was just so binary. You were a wife and mother yes. or you weren't. 
And right. if you were going to go into the workforce, you were either a teacher or a nurse or a secretary. That was basically, you know, and I'm not saying that pe- women didn't do these other things, but in sort of mainstream culture and the mainstream culture that a woman like Trisha or a woman like Charlene would have been exposed to, I mean, they're living these extraordinarily exotic lives. But it's also driven by who their husbands are and what their husbands Yes, and, and it's also the, 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 the little circle of domesticity that right? they carry around <laughs> with them, right? Um, it's, they're far away, but they're hanging on to, um, you know, the, the same life that they once had and not letting where they find themselves intervene. But I'm so glad that you said binary, because one of the things, um, you know, when you, you get to the end of composing a novel mm-hmm. and it's, is that too much? Is that too obvious? Is that too subtle? And the repeated references to twinning <laughs> in this novel. This novel is all about duality. It's right. it's it's devils and angels and two women trying to accomplish what one single woman can't. And there are twins everywhere. Yeah. Um, there are cousins and sisters and mm-hmm. spouse. And I think ultimately it's what the story brought me to. That mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, you know, the the impulse to condemn, right. to say you did that wrong, can very swiftly become, well, you did your best. Right. <laughs> right. And it does come down to that that moment when as a reader or as a writer entering into a story, we say it's not about me, it's about you. Your experience, your justifications, <laughs> your limits. Um, it's about that. And that's what we have to look at clearly, not through the filter of, well, we know better. Um, well, you shouldn't have been such a wimp. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, you and I are taping this conversation 60 years after the events that kick off the novel. I mean, certainly we get up right. into the 80s and 90s in the present day, but 1963. And you and I are taping this in 2023. And I was talking to a couple of younger colleagues in the office when I was prepping for the show. And, you know, there is this sort of moment culturally, right, where age sort of defines how you see Vietnam. You know, as you said at the top of the show, we know that American policy was a complete failure in Southeast Asia, like we've heard it a million times. But also, I have younger colleagues who are like, well, it's the music and the protest lyrics and the protest poetry. And it's a different it's 1968 in Chicago it's a different kind of experience of that early moment and I honestly and you know for a couple of different reasons but when I think of America and Vietnam you know I'm thinking (laughs) McGeorge Bundy so to have this piece and you know I've read The Quiet American multiple times and possibly have given my old original penguin green spine (laughs) to someone because I couldn't find it so I'm off, you know, but the idea that The Quiet American's still in print and still resonates the way it does mm-hmm. and the way that Graham Greene, you know, this rather sort of sarcastic, gimlet-eyed Brit is still mm-hmm. relevant almost 70 years. Is it? Yeah, it's close to 70 years since Quiet American first came out and that we find these echoes, right, that everyone brings their own experience to reading this book, which is why I asked you to start with those opening lines, because I really like the opening of this book. <laughs> no one thinks about the wives. And that's true. No. Of any 
like we could have been in Baltimore. We could have been in Brooklyn. We could have been on Long Island. We could have been any of those places. And no one thinks because it's 1963. Right. Yeah. The fact that that is the periphery of of things going wrong. 63. I'm not the first person to notice this was an amazing historically Mm -hmm. pivotal year. Um, Of course, you know, for those of us of a certain age, right away, we think of JFK's assassination. But it was preceded by Diem's assassination, which, you know, was the beginning of the catastrophes um, of U.S. involvement um, in that year. But Medgar Evers was was assassinated in 63. March on Washington. The Vatican II started in 1963. It's amazing um, when when you look at the year, how pivotal it is. And it is, even that it is 60 years later, mm-hmm. there's so much that's unbelievable about what was accepted. That we, I mean, having copy editors when we were going through the book, uh, young right. copy editors, no, women didn't wear stockings in Saigon when it was 100 degrees, did they? Silk stockings? Are you kidding? Yes, they did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? And the hair and the makeup and the girdles. I mean, girdles. I yes, when yeah. I think of girdle and the way women had to dress and comport themselves, no matter where they were. I mean, those women were wearing girdles in in hundred degree humidity. I mean, <laughs> there was just a column about Diane Feinstein um, that that had a quote again that was just from from the mid sixties. From a newspaper account, when about how she was so articulate and so smart that it kept all the reporters from sort of leering over her beautiful legs and gorgeous eyes. This was in the mid six, late sixties, I think it was, um, and and how her clothing was described. You know, she was the mayor. You know, I mean, right. or she, you know was a politician. She was a woman in politics who was saying important things. Um, and and nobody even knew enough. And this goes back to Graham right. to, to think that's a failing on our part. Right. Um, men who are in charge, who are telling the story, who are recording the history. There are a couple of very nice moments, too, in Absolution, where you're making fun of men for mansplaining Buddhism. There are men with feelings about Buddhism. Oh, and I mean, I'm sorry, I've been in some of those conversations. <laughs> Not that long ago. I mean, there is a little bit of a ripple effect. I mean, that's part of the fun for me of reading something that isn't set necessarily in a current moment. You know, I, and again, part of the narrative does bring us into the present day, but the bulk of this book really is um, not last Tuesday. And I do, I love connecting the dots between where we've been and who we were and sort of where we are now and what that means for where we go. Right. Like that's why I read. And it's like that right. E.M. Forrester line. And I think you've written or delivered a lecture on this only connect, right. That E.M. Forrester line. It's like, you've got to connect the words and the passion and everything and bring it together. And I feel like I get that when I read you, whether we're on Long Island or we're in Brooklyn or we're in the Bronx or whatever. I did not know though, that you aspired at one point to be, more like a Russian novelist than <laughs> the writer you've become. And can we just take a minute and talk about the evolution? Because your books are really beautiful and consistent. And I know when I'm reading you and the sentences are like cut glass and the characters and the women. But I was not thinking that 
you had wanted to do something sort of dramatically different. And yes, you could argue that Nabokov and Chekhov are much closer to what you do. <laughs> but when I hear Russian novelists, I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> doorstoppers. So can we talk about the evolution of you as a writer for a second? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I don't know that it was so much that I was out to uh, write doorstoppers, um, okay. more aiming for the big themes. And I suppose it's a belief I've, I've, I've held, um, you know, since the time I, I started reading and um, falling into books, that books should never be about what they're about, um, that the subject should always be beside the point, right. that the setting and, and the particulars of the history should always be beside the point. Um, that it should be about something that all of us share forever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so I guess that's when it, that that's that's the 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 Russian part of it to read those great sweeping historic. And I think Nabokov said this to read those great sweeping historical novels just to find out what life was like in gay Paris. Actually, you sent me looking for his lecture, his set of lectures on literature, and of course I couldn't find my copy, so I had to go buy a new one. This frequently <laughs> happens, actually, when I'm. Working on a show, and I'll just be like, I don't know where Easier to buy a new copy. <laughs> it's been a really long time since I've read those pieces, and uh, it's like, oh. Because again, I love the idea that you can be in conversation, you, Alice McDermott, can be in conversation with Virginia Woolf, or you could be in conversation with Chekhov or Nabokov or, you know, whoever. And I like, or even the fact that Rosencrantz and Gilderstern is dead is one of your favorite plays. Like, I mean, Stoppard is fun man he is so, so fun on the page yes. but all yeah. of these inputs right get us to vietnam in 1963 with trisha and charlene it's sure yeah I, I love seeing that and i love sort of thinking about how all of these pieces connect the structure too classic sort of three acts but not there's a lot in this book it seems a little looser maybe than the ninth hour. And I don't know if that's me as a reader, but it does feel like you're a little looser on the page than ninth hour. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think probably ninth hour has sort of a collective voice mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a, a reach for imagining um, what hasn't been lived through a collective voice. Um, and, and here it, it is very much the specific voice. Um, it, very much that that story this is what's so wonderful and and how blessed we are by the world's literature let's be yeah let's be honest. No, it, it's true um, you know yeah that that we can be in dialogue and 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 that um the time that you know there's 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 really no expiration date on the great themes on what we're looking for what what we go to story for what we go mm -hmm. to literature for you right. know that that's you know, tell me why, tell me what's it all about. Tell me, right. you know, um, let me, and I think what happens is for each of us individually who take on this vocation for our lives, um, it's all right, well then I'll find what has, I'll, I'll reach for those things we're all talking about and we're right. all striving for, but I'll, but I'll find as my subject, what it seems to me hasn't been treated yet. On um, the shallow level, it's just well, yeah, we haven't really heard from the the wives and the the little girls uh, in mm -hmm. Saigon in 1963 and what their lives were like. 
But I think it's also that, um, you know, the excitement of saying um, through this that hasn't been looked at before, I can get at what we're all looking at constantly. Every all of us who write and all of us who read. Um, I'm always sort of dismayed when I hear um, young writers talk about, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm so frustrated because I'm not seeing myself or my experience in any of the fiction mm. that I'm reading. I always want to say, aren't you lucky? <laughs> you know? Isn't that great? That's wonderful because now you know what you need to do. Um, yes, you're calling, you're hearing the call um, because you're not seeing um, or, or you're you're not finding who you're most curious about. There you go. There, that's your obligation. Do it. Make the art. Yeah. I was just thinking of Brian Washington, actually, the author of Memorial. And there's a story collection called Lot in the new novelist Family Meal. But that's exactly, he was just like, I have to make this thing because no one else has written the thing. And, you know, it's it's become sort of accepted wisdom, you know, right. Was it Toni Morrison who did say it, or has that become apocryphal, write the book that you haven't seen yet or that you want to read? I feel like so many of these things become yeah. apocryphal. That's the door you go, you choose to go through to enter into what we've all been talking about. And I think that's, uh, um, if you're only writing because nobody's gone through that door, that's not enough. This is my way into the larger questions. Um, this is my way into what we all share, no matter what door or window we come in through. Right, right. Um, and I think that's what's exciting. Um, and that's why I say, you know, I, I hold this, this stubborn belief. And again, um, when I was teaching, I could see my students always, their eyes crossed when I would say, well, you know, this story is really too much about what it's about. <laughs> right. Know? What the hell do I do with that? <laughs> but, you know, but there is that sense we're all trying to get at what this human experience right. is um, and what we do as mortal creatures who make mistakes and fail and, and do terrible things and do wonderful things and love one another and hate one another. Mm -hmm. How do we make sense of this time? It's marvelous that there are so many ways into that, but but I think what keeps literature alive for all of us um, is that eventually it gets to that, that thing. And it goes back to Nabokov, you know, when, when I can look at Humbert Humbert and say, that's me. I could, mm -hmm. I understand this guy. And, and not only that, I feel what he feels. My own humanity is expanded awfully. <laughs> no, awful I, no, no, I, but that is, that is an example of that we need to think about i'm also just as you were speaking again i'm sort of rolling around this idea from forrester right and uh, who's a huge influence also on zadie smith and all of these mm -hmm. pieces that we pulled right only connect and obviously i'm paraphrasing that piece as well but this idea that reading it's not passive right like you bring your own experience not just of the world but of text and uh, you know michael cunningham has this line about how he feels like writing his own work is an act of translation before he even hands it off mm -hmm. to his translators to turn whatever novel into whatever language it's going to be and i love this idea of translating the bigger idea right 
you're talking about the bigger themes and all. How do you translate those ideas into language mm-hmm. that gets you to a point where someone connects with what has been rolling around in the back of your head since you read The Quiet American in college? Right. right. Like this giant, you can just see this giant continuum of words and ideas. Right. And it's also the great gift of the imagined and that how language brings us. I I write so-called realistic fiction, Mm -hmm. um, but but, um, realism is full of magic. (laughs) The the fact alone that someone can put a few words together and you can feel Mm -hmm. the heat when you're wearing silk stockings and a girdle (laughs) at a garden party in Saigon in a time you've never lived and you can be there that 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 a writer can can make us be there and live the experience um, you know and once we've lived the experience then we can have these wonderful conversations and i do think you've got the best job in the world I do. by the way <laughs> i really do <laughs> it's like i want to talk to the writer i just finished the book i want to talk yeah. to the you know holden caulfield's whole thing about i want to call up the writer but first we've lived it you know, right. and right. when literature allows us to live, to be there, there's something sort of miraculous about that. Um, and and that has to happen first. Um, you know, a, a, a piece of fiction has to do that to us first. Then we can talk about what what that experience meant. We can talk about the language. We can talk about the sentences that brought right. us there. But boy, if you don't, one of my favorite things, um, and and it's, uh, I suppose it's a way I still, a very elemental way of judging fiction. I love it when something I've read, usually in a novel or a short story, comes back to me when I'm doing something else. Yep. And you have to think, where did I see that? It it has a kind of, it has, it has the truth of lived experience, but it wasn't. Yep. But it comes back to you, and it's it's sort of like a memory, and it's sort of like somebody put something in a really wonderful way. That that's such a great. I don't think we talk about that enough with young readers. Like like just store it up, you know, because really it'll it'll come back to you in marvelous marvelous ways. And sometimes when you need it, not always, but sometimes. Yeah, I think too. Part of the joy is reading widely, and I know that. Mm-hmm. I genuinely believe there's a book for every person. I, I do think when you find your thing, you know it, that's great. But I am in the position of being able to read very widely. And I sort of yes. need to also read very widely for what I do. But I love it because it pushes me to change the way I think. And it pushes me to take language in in different ways. And also, I love a semicolon. I'm just going to own it right now. I believe in Oxford commas and I like semicolons. So, mm. but when you can see where language can go and it's exactly what you were just talking about like you have this recall and mm-hmm. this idea pops up or this piece pops up or this memory that isn't actually yours pops up <laughs> it's because yeah. of the language it's because of what you read and the and the way you connected with words and ultimately the author through their words or the character through these words or the voice through these, whichever piece you're generally, but it does come back to the words. It comes yes. back yes. to yes. 
the prose. And I, you know, I I like a pretty sentence. I like a pretty sentence that does stuff. I like a pretty sentence that's concise. Like many people experience the sentence that goes on for quite some time. And sometimes it's great and it's not a stunt. And sometimes you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But when yeah. you can connect yeah. with the character and the voice and the writer, it's just, it's such a great, it's such a delight to be able to do that. Yeah. And the language is, is sort of the, the invocation, mm -hmm. you know, the, the language is casting the spell. I know um, because I've had this conversation with so many writers, young and old and, and, and in between, um, you know, it's striking that fine balance of yeah. right language, right words, right rhythm, right music, and not stepping over into operatic <laughs> and, and inflated purple prose, um, you know, not putting too much of a burden on the language. Um, but, but paying attention to it in in a very primary way. Now that you're not teaching, I don't know if you have more time to read. I'm sure you have all of these plans for things. Have you had a chance, though, yet to read Paul Murray's The Beasting? No, everybody's telling me about it. Yes. All right. Yes. Yeah. If you have a chance, he does a thing where a character sort of is revisiting her life and there's no punctuation and it's <laughs> glorious. Oh, it works. Wow. It really, but it works in a way that, you know, sometimes you think, mm, okay. And it just, <laughs> it actually, it worked so well that I had a moment of thinking there was no punctuation anywhere in this 500 plus page novel. Yes, and yeah. it really, so if you have a chance as a storytelling tool, it absolutely, yes, yeah. absolutely works. And it represents who this character is and where she's come from and, and everything really? else. And didn't once bother me that the, I honestly yeah. I it took me a minute probably to notice that there was no punctuation because the flow and the rhythm was just there the cadence was there there has to be the truth I mean this goes back yeah. to that big cap piece yep. it's if it's authentic and it's telling we know readers know um you and I know when we're being scammed yeah, <laughs> you completely. Know, even completely it's uh, this is a little bit more about the author's ego and mm -hmm. the author's juggling, and I'm being asked to admire the author's juggling than it is about character right. and story. And when it's about character and story, there's all kinds of crazy things you can get away with. <laughs> there is a piece, though, of your work that I, I do want to sort of get to because I it underpins everything you just said, but faith seems to be the sort of undercurrent, right, that you have, not just of Catholic Catholicism is a big piece of it, yes, but this sort of faith in our humanity and our ability, like you have faith in your characters mm -hmm. that they're going to get to the other side somehow. Now, we're going to find out how they get to the other side, but part of it I do think is organized belief in Catholicism, but faith as a concept. Like faith in the story, faith, faith in the voice, faith in the character. I mean, it's kind of what you've been talking about through this entire conversation is that there's this undercurrent of faith. And it sounds to me and it seems to me that you don't even have to think about it. It's just there. Well, I don't know why I would write if it were, if it okay. were not. There's that sense of, um, no, I probably, I'll probably fail will probably fail. My characters okay. will probably fail. 
um, it's impossible to make sense <laughs> of this existence of ours. It's impossible to make sense of any uh, relationship. It's impossible to make perfect sense of any past or any history or any politics. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Right. And yet something spurs us to try. Right. Something spurs us to say, but no, I think this really matters, even when um, everything around us is saying, ah, eh, by next year, we won't even be thinking about that. Or, you know, right. get that. They, 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 were, they failed. They were stupid. They didn't see what they were doing. Move on. There's something there. I mm-hmm. think that has to be, that's the faith of any artist, really. It's the thing we haven't seen yet that is somehow real and existing in the material at hand. Right. I just have to. And I know I won't get there. I know I won't. I know it won't be perfect. I know, I, and the characters know it too. I think at the heart of absolution is that I don't know how to be good. You know, mm-hmm. the the uh, you know Charlene um, sets the <laughs> prepare the world, and she laughs and says, "Buddha say heal yourself." Right. Um, you know, which is connected obviously to what we were talking about before mm-hmm. that. I'm going to go to Birmingham and I'm going to fight for social justice and civil rights. Um, And no, 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 you're going to take care of this one person who loves you above everything else in his life. And without you, his life is meaningless. I'm trying to get there, trying to do the right thing, but I don't know which, what the right thing is. Um, And I think that's where, I mean, that's where the, our need for absolution. Yeah. Um, you need to forgive one another, you know, right. because no, we're not going to get it right. I also think that good, like the idea, the concept of good is oftentimes thrust at us. I mean, obviously, as human beings, we aspire to be good. We aspire to do the right thing. We, but sometimes good gets warped. It gets twisted. And I think, you know, we certainly see that. I mean, that's part of the fun of reading, right? Like you can dip into terrible things and just be like, well. Now I can put the book down and I can go have dinner and come back to it. But this idea that good is not, it's not necessarily tangible. Sometimes it's just an idea that someone throws at you and it may or may not work. And watching these women sort of process what good, right? Like, how do you help people? Well, helping people is is good, but there are going to be readers who have feelings about some of the things they encounter in absolution and i loved it i mean i loved charlene's character i was like who are you lady this is great but i think there are going to be folks who are sort of sitting with trisha and saying what what and i really i can't wait to hear those responses and i really can't wait to see how people connect to these women because they're so alive and they're so vibrant on the page and yeah they kind of have been they represent a group that has been forgotten like it has, yeah, but but I think what you say that 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 struggle not only to do good but to define it, right, um, mm. is is never ending, and and that whole duality thing. There there are are two doctors in this novel um, only connect, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one appears um, at a leper colony in 1963, right. and um, he's either the devil himself or he's an incredible <laughs> angel. He's going around on his own, trying to do good. Um, he might also be CIA, who knows, doing right. terrible things. Right. Um, and he tells terrible stories and sort of brings Trisha to a moment of, in some ways, complete despair, not knowing, you right. know, 
what's good, what's is life even worth living? Later in the novel, and it's very brief, um, but Dominic, the Vietnam vet who also was there in mm-hmm. 1963 um, and now is an older man, tells Rainey, the the little girl from the 63 section, um, that his adopted son's life was saved by an itinerant doctor. And he says, he says, this doctor is proof of a benevolent universe because he saved the life of this abandoned Down syndrome child, mm-hmm. came along and did the heart surgery that saved his life. And everybody in the year sense is like, this guy was amazing. But then there's also this doctor who also says he's out to do good, doing what good he can. And he talks about, I should have just put a pillow over the head of that infant because what put him out of his misery. Mm-hmm. What's the sense of that child living? It's not just that that impulse to do good, um, but the confusion we run into when we try to define good and how much good is done inadvertently, just as how much evil um, can be done in the name of good inadvertently, um, you know, the best of intentions. It's slippery. Context is slippery, especially when you're talking about people. And when you're talking about people in this kind of, you put your people in a fishbowl. Even when we're not in Vietnam, I mean, Rainey's life is a little bit of a fishbowl. Certainly Trisha's life before she's been, everyone's in their own little fishbowls. And the question is, where do they go from there? And it's really, I have to say, it was quite, this book was a trip in the ways that you want (laughs) literature to be a trip. I mean, I'm assuming you also could surprise yourself too, though, while you were writing. I mean, if you're letting character and voice drive what you're doing, then there's an opportunity for you to be surprised by Trisha and Charlene. I never felt like I knew, especially with Trisha. Trisha was like Charlene. I got Charlene's rhythms pretty quickly because she's Charlene. Um, But watching Trisha evolve was really, yeah, it was nice. It was really nice. Can I ask what's next? My pre-publication, the way I, you think I would be used to this by now, but Mm -hmm. the way I deal life in pre-publication is um, I keep my nose very close to the next novel and don't look up. Um, So I am well along um, a a novel that I was writing for a long time in parallel with Absolution um, now has has my full focus. Um, But a little bit of it, and I love what you said earlier, a little bit of it is... um, you know, we do fall into as readers, we do fall into these traps. This is the these are the writers right. I read, these right. kind of books I like. Um, and I've always told students, especially undergrads, mm-hmm. you know, read discriminately for as long as you can. <laughs> you know, eventually you'll be set in your ways and you won't have right. the patience for the stuff that's not working or that you don't want to finish. Mm-hmm. But at this, you know, early in your career, read everything. At this stage of my life, not wanting to get stuck in my ways. Um I'm I'm trying to write um, things that I normally wouldn't read um, in okay. genres, approaches. Um, okay. One thing that I haven't done yet, but I see it on the shelf as a possibility. Um, I have no patience for novels written by writers, by novelist characters. It's a terrible flaw because there are mm-hmm. so many wonderful novels, right. but I always find myself recoil as soon as someone said, well, I was writing a short story. I said, well, I don't want to know about your life. Um, so maybe that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's a challenge. 
and, and, and it might be um, terribly introspective and boring or, um, <laughs> but I think that's that sense of, for all of us, of, of yeah. pushing yourself. I don't know anyone who writes who doesn't want to be surprised by their own writing yeah. because that's what you want as a reader. And, and we're all readers first. First, we're readers. Then we do the karaoke of trying our own hand. Um, <laughs> if I'm not being surprised and, and challenged and dismayed often mm-hmm. when I'm composing a novel, um, I got a lot of other things I could be doing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't need enough. to be. Uh, I am going to mention that you do have a craft book from a couple of years ago called What About the Baby? And um, I really yes. like saying that title. So sorry, I have to say it again. <laughs> what About the Baby? Which, you know, if you're figuring out whether or not you're going to end up writing too, it's it's not a bad place to start. I had a really good time with that. That is a book that I hold quite close. And partially because it surprised me so much. I I was so invested in Marie's life and very quickly. And again, it was that just line after line of a woman's life. And I have zero, I, very little in common, I should say, with this with this particular character. And I just, I really, I still so fondly think of that. And I dip back in every now and again. And uh, I just, I'm so fond of that book. So thank you. And Absolution is, I cannot wait, cannot wait for other readers to get their hands on this book. Because it really, it's it's special and it's a little different for you, but not, I mean, anyway, I'm really looking forward to it being out in the world. Alice McDermott, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Right. BNN Book Club. We're going to do that in December too. And then we can do the spoilers there. So that's, we've been (laughs) around so much of this book because we can't do spoilers. But Alice, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I so appreciate meeting you. Thank you so much and safe travels. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, Please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.